for December 8th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 336, Black Mirror, The Pig-Effing Trolley Problem. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm... Matt Rather, I'm here with a panel uh, of a, a much larger panel and a, and a much more diverse panel than we usually have. Uh, we're going to talk about Black Mirror, the anthology series that has been taking Netflix by storm. Uh, a few listeners have written in and friends of ours have written, written in to us that we should watch and talk about Black Mirror on Overthinking It. So uh, we have watched the first series and we are going to uh, talk about it with a panel, including a podcast regulars, Matt Belinke. Hey, Matt. Uh, how you doing? Pete Fenzel. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. And Ryan Sheely. Hey, Ryan. What's up? Uh, as well as special guest podcasters and significant others of the Overthinking It uh, podcast regulars, Rachel D. Hi, Rachel. Hello. And Fiona S. Hi, Fiona. Hey! <laughs> in the other room. Uh, we couldn't figure out, or at least I couldn't figure out quickly enough how to get two people talking on the same mic because you'd need two sets of headphones and there'd be a delay and it would be a disaster. So this is literally the thing where you're, you're uh, sitting in, in between rooms and texting to each other uh, instead of, or Skyping to each other instead of talking face to face. But in the future, we, we only will sit at Skype and talk to each other via Skype or via podcast. Uh, but before we get to Black Mirror, Hey, this week, uh, we saw the return of the, uh, the return of the live musical live on NBC. Now, uh, we almost did, Hey, what should be the next musical as a question of the week, but I'm sure we did. I can't remember what we did last time. I'm sure we did that though. What, what is the next musical? Um, no one would have guessed that it would be Peter Pan and no one would have guessed that it would be Alison Williams who, who, depending on whether you listen to Twitter or Alexander Stanley in the New York times, uh, was either terrible or very good. Matt, you, you watched the musical, the full thing. You, you sacrificed yourselves for all of our sins, all of our musical sins. Uh, was Alison Williams bad or good? I, well, first of all, I barely got to watch it because I was so busy tweeting that I was I was tweeting so much I didn't really get to take it in very much. Um, really, Alison Williams was passable. Like she didn't she didn't. I don't think like embarrass herself and her whole family, but like, nor did she come off as like a big bright shining star. I think the real shock of the night was that uh, she outperformed Christopher Walken, who came out as just sort of like tired and apathetic and really and and was mentioned in numerous occasions. Seemed to be reading his lines off a series of cue cards. Uh, well, um, as I'm sure he was, as doubtless he was. Did he yeah, give? Like, you know, did he give the Christopher- full Walken though? I mean, he he does Walken esque line readings, but like he doesn't do the the sort of continental esque um, sort of like almost self mocking Walken that like you, you Captain Hook is a is a real sort of like scenery chewing uh, part where like you should uh, I, the, the word that springs into my mind is gusto. There should be gusto, and there was a distinct lack of gusto, um, and so that like you know I sort of expected it to be like a a. Alison Williams would be embarrassed in contrast to the the true acting professional that is Christopher Walken, and instead, just everybody was pretty embarrassing. Well, let's not uh, do musicals on TV anymore. Let's let's do something else. In uh, in our question of the week panel, 
Um, what would you like to see people do live on TV? What's a new thing that we should be doing live on TV that we're not uh, doing live on TV yet? Uh, Matt, for giving us that review and also because your name begins with B, you get to go first. You have uh, pride of place in the uh, in the question of the week. What uh, now that now that you've endured Allison Williams as Peter Pan, what would you like to see people do live on TV? You know, like I was going, I was going to say that 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 it should be like, uh, like a, a straight play, um, a, a non musical play, because I feel like the problem with putting on a musical is the emphasis is so much on the singing and the the dancing that like it 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 you lose all these possibilities of getting really high class high class quality actors to do what they do best in this sort of like you know and 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 to, to give it this immediacy. I mean, this was a standby of the golden age of television. And then suddenly, as I was about to answer, I had this sort of flashback that this has been tried in fairly recent years. I don't know if you guys remember Failsafe from the year 2000. Um, this was a, it was a, uh, the Failsafe, of course, is this sort of Cold War era um, drama that was, a, it was a movie was uh, directed by Sidney Lumet. Yep. And in 2000, uh, CBS did a live uh, black and white. For some reason, they they, they broadcasted in black and white, um, starring George Clooney, Richard Dreyfus, Harvey Keitel, and Noah Wiley. Uh, so it was like an ER reunion plus Richard Dreyfus and Harvey Keitel. Um, and uh, yeah, apparently, it was okay. I don't know. I'm I'm like reading re- reviews right now. Apparently, people thought it was fine, but not uh, not great. But I I do I like the idea of like let's say like the Royal Shakespeare Company performing Shakespeare. I think that would be that would be fun. And I'd be curious. People might like it. So you know, we, it, might, I, it might play in the flyover country. Who I mean, knows? Is it important that it be? Is it important that it be a live performance that's been captured or a live, a live broadcast? Because they do these things now, and it seems like every theater is jumping on the bandwagon. Every theater of of maybe international stature, every arts organization of international stature is jumping on the bandwagon uh, to broadcast. Live performances. The uh, the Met in New York does this. Um, the Globe Theater has recently announced a streaming service where uh, normally they go into movie theaters. And uh, the Globe is something that you can stream to your uh, internet dingus. And um, you know it seems it seems like a thing. So, but but you're talking about television live recordings of uh, live performances of straight play television productions rather than. Uh, televising live performances in the theater, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. that It sort of raises the larger question of why do this at all? Why do a live performance when you could record it and edit it and, and, and get it absolutely the way you want it? And I guess, you know, the, the, what what I would argue or what I would hypothesize is that there there is something about live theater, even televised live theater, even through that sort of like intermediary of the television that, you know, can't be replicated by, by filming it, picking your camera angles and then editing it, adding music, so on and so forth. And so, I, you know, it's interesting because the, the fact that people don't do it anymore, is that just because it's too risky, it's it's easier to record it? And, and um, I don't know. I, I I would be curious to I, I sort of feel that that having these musicals done live it comes off as a gimmick and I'm not really from from either of the two musicals that have been done in past years I'm not really seeing how that's a better experience than them just doing a TV movie and airing it um, and I feel like if it were like that sort of like a real drama that required real actors to actually interact with each other and not just sort of like perform the lines but actually 
have a real. I mean, you of all people, Matt. I'm 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 going to uh, cede the rest of my time so you could talk a little longer about what you would like to see live. I think I talk enough on this podcast. Pete Fazzola is <laughs> next. No, he's not. Sorry, I, I forgot about our special guest. Rachel D uh, is next alphabetically. Rachel, what should we do on TV that we're not doing now? What's interesting because I I mean I kind of I do agree that the only benefit of seeing live um, theatrical performances is to see. I don't know. I think SNL, for example, I, I forget that it's live and that, and I find it still kind of stillborn in watching it, except when I see someone break, right? And it's the moment of seeing someone break and they can't contain themselves and they're sloppy that makes it fun to watch. And to that end, I was thinking about what I would actually like to see and I think where I still feel a sense of like the, the immediacy and fun of live TV is in, in seeing something that seems quote unquote real breaking news. So in that end, I'd like to see more kind of, I don't know, like, you know, landmark space exploration on television or something like, you know, the first extreme deep sea dive televised, I, something that was sort of a scientific watershed moment in a human exploration. I would like to see more of that on TV, which would require a whole lot of other things to happen first. That could be, that <laughs> could get like really gruesome though, right? Don't you think when the, uh, <laughs> that could get really gruesome, like in, in this, the case of space exploration, if things went really wrong. But that's by, why it'd be worth watching. I guess so, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, that, that is an argument that you hear about, like, why people would tune in to see Peter Pan. is like, what if a wire breaks? What if somebody gets slammed right into the set? And I, I don't know. I mean, do you think that's true, that the reason people tune in to see, like, Carrie Underwood or Allison Williams do a live musical is in the hope that, like, somebody will fall flat on their face on national TV no, and, like, I mean, their voice think, will crack think, or they'll forget their line. I think that, that that provides a sort of, that flips a switch that says something is special and I do believe that people are so dead inside that that they will take any excuse, and, and I don't exclude any of us from this, you know, we'll take any excuse to feel like any day is contains a, a special element outside the humdrum stationary biking that we normally do in all of our uh, in all of our lives, but I'm getting ahead of, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Pete Fenzel is next in the alphabet. All right. Well, thanks very much. I'll jump in. Uh, so for me, live entertainment, and I do a lot of live, and a lot of us do a lot of live entertainment, but uh, live entertainment for me, a lot of it is about the communicating both the, glo- the glory of the experience of life in its transience, right? Like an art that is about life. Uh, it, it benefits in certain aspects or reflects certain truths or, you know, whatever you want to talk about in terms of truth, grandeurs, glories, experiences, by virtue of it being both impressive and passing, right? Because that's kind of what life is. Life is not a commodifiable uh, movie, and we can talk about this later, but it's not a commodifiable movie that you can watch over and over again. It's an experience that exists once and then it's over. Uh, and so for me, thinking, okay, well, what is the thing that we can do? What what old kinds of entertainments could we bring back that are big and grand and by their nature uh, just destroy themselves in a huge way such that they have to be done live? Like you would not be able to satisfactorily do this in the same way uh, were it to be pre-taped. And what comes to mind for me is the Namakia. Are you guys are you familiar with the Namakia, Matt? 
perhaps if you uh, clue me in as to what it yeah, is. Yeah, sure. So the nomachia is a form of ancient Roman entertainment where you would fill a giant basin of water somewhere, either inside of a stadium or on the banks of a river or a larger or a sea or body of water, and you would stay. Right, like you, you would have like glad either you know sort of semi gladiatorial performative naval battles. Uh, I'm not really authoritative on whether they were simulated or real or to what degree. Um, but what I'm imagining is a giant televised reenactment of like the Battle of Actium, right? Like from the perspective of Anthony and Cleopatra on one side and Octavian on the other side, right? And say like you know they're all played by huge celebrities, right? Like Anthony and Cleopatra are played by like Will and, and Jada Pinkett Smith or something. And then, like Octavian is played by Quincy Jones or something like that. I don't know. I can't. I can't think of. I can't think of a way of telling that story that isn't in some way difficult to do under the, the political contours of our day. But the point is that, like, I'm imagining, imagining like sort of giant ships, right, that have been reconstructed. I'm not the only one who lost Pete, right? <laughs> All right. In my head, he's still talking. <laughs> let's let's move on. Uh, <laughs> since we lost Pete, let's move on to uh, Ryan Sheely, who's next in the alphabet. Well, like Pete, uh, I want to pick up the torch of kind of combining live entertainment with some amount of civic education. I want to take it a step further. Um, what I want to put live on TV uh, are tax audits. Uh, and I want the the process of randomization uh, and then actual auditing to happen uh, live in real time so that like uh, uh, during uh, the audit season um, – Anyone, uh, that when the cameras are on, that knock could come at your door at any time. And so it both, like, promotes civic education, but also makes, like, you know, the pro- – well, yeah, there's uh, some theories of tax compliance that say that um, people's, like, likelihood of cheating on their taxes or underreporting is uh, driven by their, like, pr- uh, probability, their estimate of their probability of being uh, being audited, right, the expected value of the audit. And so this, like, increases that um, – that that uh, that perceived uh, the perceived probability of getting drawn, and maybe either the 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 cost or the benefits uh, of of that. Uh, and I, I think I would imagine there would be both a technical audit expert, uh, probably a color commentary co- commentator, and then maybe another like a celebrity host, a Ryan Seacrest uh, type uh, hosting the audit proceedings. But again, there would be a central auditorium, but then dispersed teams of auditors throughout the country. Um, um, uh, in the ongoing uh, audit audit games. Ryan, just to clarify, did you say auditorium? <laughs> green light it green light it <laughs> so it's, ba- it's basically the hunger games but with but with like you know more receipts yeah it's the uh it's the it's the deduction games yeah <laughs> is there a uh uh is there like a you know district concept is it the different branch offices of the irs all all over the world facing off against each other against who can root out the most malfeasance who can root out the who can recover for the government the most hidden I guess revenue? It's, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that the analog would be the different it'd be the, it'd be the income brackets, right? That the, the, <laughs> the income brackets are each of the districts, right? Because the the uh, the businesses are like the districts one and two. They're the ones that are closest to the government, uh, and they're they're kind of the lapdogs. Um, and then there are the uh, there are the the that goes all the way down the the tax brackets. Um, so yeah, I see it kind of being constructed in that way. Mm. This is basically like Tea Party fan fiction, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's both. Yeah, it's 
Well, is is it fan fiction or like actually what they think is going to? Is it is it? It's like fan fiction slash. Um, like yeah, it's like it's like dystopia. It's the, like dystopia, like cautionary tale. <laughs> I uh, yeah, um, I was about to to make some joke about slash fiction with the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, and I just realized I didn't know who on earth the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service is. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that it is Josh, um, Josh Koskinen. There you go. Uh, something you didn't know. I'm going to link you to his uh, to his Wikipedia page in the show notes for this. Uh, Fiona, next in the alphabet, Fiona S. What uh, are we going to do on TV? Um, I guess I first thought about uh, competition shows, and then I realized a lot of them are already live. So I thought about a new competition show that's servers. Uh, just following them around at night, and I don't know what they compete for necessarily, but you just like get to see what they deal with every night. I don't know. Clearly, I have some stuff up. <laughs> some development to do on your idea, but I, I like that you, along with Ryan, seem to be fomenting class warfare along <laughs> along. Right, the 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 machinery of capitalism may be you know oiled with the blood of the workers, but consumers of luxury goods are not supposed to have to think about how the goods are are. Yeah. Made right, like you don't want to think about the the food's journey from the farm to the restaurant and then uh, on a platter to your table right. with okay. your uh, with your waiter or waitress. You want you want to imagine that it just is summoned forth from from the mind well, of the chef. You, you want you want to know that it was properly raised and then it just appears on your table. Right, absolutely. Uh, that is very buzzword compliant. Yes, uh, you know it's that it's artisanal farm to table. Absolutely, new new American cuisine. Yeah, you know small plates. It's interesting because that's sort of the movie Coyote Ugly wanted to be before it got taken over by so many other interests. Yeah. Leanne rhymes for one. Um. Yeah. I still listen to Can't Fight the Moonlight. It's like on my running playlist. Uh huh. Well, uh, you, you can try to resist, try to hide from my kiss, but you know, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you can't fight my idea. Fiona actually just, just tipped me off to it. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the stuff on reality shows that looks like it's live is in fact pre-taped. But I was thinking like, why not just, it's turtles all the way down. Why not stare deeply into the mise-en-en -en beam of, uh, reality television production and have a live show perhaps even a 24-hour network that is about the production of reality television that is in in the offices of the uh you know uh of the company that produces the real housewives or the company that produces um the real world that was a big one i mean even if the real world i'm not even sure if the real world is on tv anymore um whether uh you know uh that that produces all of these things we can watch with no manipulation the manipulation of our uh, of our you know audiences of our nation by means of these reality shows we can get a uh, it should be called like the sausage making channel or or something like that except so it doesn't have any sausage it's the real sausage producers of the real housewives <laughs> But then uh, it, it, you you get this kind of infinite regress problem pro, uh, problem because to know that it's not manipulated, you have to then uh, have the twenty four hour channel showing the making of the of that twenty four hour channel, um, and it's it's reality. It's it, like you say, it's reality TV channels all the way down. Mm. 
Now we uh, we lost Pete in the middle of his his answer. I think we have him back now. So Pete, uh, I, while we were in uh, while we were in the Coliseum that had been plugged up uh, at every vomitorium, <laughs> watching uh, watching a naval battle. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know where we would hold these. Probably in SeaWorld once they, you know, once the animal welfare people take all the, the orcas out. Um, you know, there, there will be these giant tanks in, in which we can stage naval battles. Uh, so what is, what is the benefit to the, to the body politic for this, uh, of this uh, sort of spectacle that can be uh, done live and also televised? Oh, uh, well, I, I'm, I am back, and I'm glad to be back. Uh, the, the benefit of it is that you can see these huge things. And I can even only also imagine it being done not in tanks but out on the rivers, out on the oceans. You know, vary, if you, you have to find the right battle. Maybe Actium isn't the right battle. But you would build these giant expensive ships, and the ships would burn and explode, right? And you would have all these soldiers, right? And they would be in their armor and their swords, and they would be clashing, right? And, and, and we, would, we would not make the effort to, say, preserve the usability of these costumes for future use, as you might if you were, say, like a Civil War reenactor, right? Um, you might even figure out ways of adjudicating parts of it through, like, wrestling matches or fighting matches maybe aspects of it could be sport right such that the deter the outcome wasn't predetermined right um i know i've played in certain video games i think red alert 2 was one of them where they they would tell you that there was sort of a macro fight that was happening based on all the little fights that all the individual people were having right and one side of the macro fight or the other side of the macro fight would gradually be winning depending upon whether the allies or the soviet or whatever were were winning the battle so maybe you could set up some sort of grand macro battle that could be zoomed out or zoomed in to various different levels, various different people, um, right? It just seems like a sort of something along that model could be appropriately grand and appropriately uh, transient, appropriately expirable, right? Appropriately impossible to repeat to make it worth putting on live TV and thus talked about on Twitter, which is the real point of putting things on live TV. So it would basically be like heavily narrativized at like epic scale American gladiators, right? (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. It's also somewhere around the area of like cutthroat Island, right? Like it's sort of like pirates of the Caribbean more, more currently, right? Where it's like, but you have to find aspects to make it not feel like all the punches are being pulled. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? That's the that's the catch is that it, there has to actually be real destruction. You know, maybe maybe a monster trucks have something to do with all of this. I'm not sure, um, but uh, but there might be some sort of grand narrative. Maybe in there. maybe our nation's wealthiest citizens bet on the outcome, and uh, those who don't declare their winnings are audited on Ryan's live IRS show. <laughs> that's a great idea <laughs> a, i like that idea you know, it's uh it's all synergy right because what we're doing is creating a franchise uh that can you know withstand all manner of uh you know all manner of permutation speaking of doing things live on the uh speaking of doing things live on the television um what let, let, and from this point spoilers for the first season of black mirror which i think is all the all that we've seen so you know you you've been warned uh, it's only three episodes. It's this, not like a ton of television. Yeah, it's it's about two and a half hours of it's about two and a half hours of TV. I, when it became clear that we were that we were doing this this evening, I uh, and Fiona and I watched the whole thing um, in one in one sitting. Uh, speaking of doing things on TV, how about doing it with a pig? It probably doesn't. Okay. <laughs> can, I, can I address? Can I address one thing here? Can I just address one thing real quick before we delve into the show itself? I think it's. A, it, did everyone here watch this show with a significant other? 
Yes. 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 Okay, so two of the significant others are on the podcast right now, and two of them are not. Um, my significant other is not on the podcast because we believe in boundaries, which I think is important in, uh, in the context of this show and an, an interesting question to address. Um, not to say that people who are on the show together don't believe in boundaries. Every relationship has its own context. People enjoy or don't enjoy being in public places to different degrees. People probably enjoyed or didn't enjoy Black Mirror in different degrees, which is definitely true of my girlfriend. No, um, it's fine. Ryan and I are one symbiotic being. <laughs> Fiona and I watch, it it, my, and my... I watch each other's memory video every night just yeah. to make sure that, you know. <laughs> yeah, we, we've, we fused our grains, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's just, it's interesting that, that half of the couples on the podcast, you know, are here to talk about it together and half of us chose not to. And I think that this modern age and technology affords us that freedom. And my girlfriend is glaring at me right now as I say these things on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, she thought she says it's a horrible show. She doesn't like the show. She doesn't want to talk about it. I will start the discussion off by saying that, like, it's not. Horrible in it doesn't what make sense, for as good like, a date night as I thought it would. <laughs> yeah, that's for that's for sure. That's for like sure. I thought it would be like, hey, let's have a sexy, fun date night and watch the sophisticated BBC thing. And uh, <laughs> no, no, that's not that's not what it is. I don't know. I I mean, do you think if they'd been presented in a different uh, order, you might have done it? Because like number three ends with this sort of breakdown of a relationship and raises all kinds of questions about trust, honesty, boundaries, and so on. Um, the the. Uh, the first one ends with a guy doing it with a pig, though, right? Like, that's, well, uh, that's not how it ends. It ends the it, you. It ends kind of the same way at that very last scene, right? He, she, his wife, like walks up the stairway, and he's like, "Wait," and she's like, "No, screw you. I am not interested anymore." <laughs> well, yeah. After you did it with a pig, you pig effer. Yeah, she doesn't want the sloppy porcine seconds. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. All right, we've edged we've edged right up against the number of chili peppers that were allowed in the iTunes store. But the uh but um yeah, I mean I guess, I guess so, right? Like if if the theme of this show is that that, you know, this is this is how if this is sort of allegorical for how technology is is beginning to affect us or this is a sort of black mirror, right, of of our current time, it's not it's not particularly um, it's not particularly uh, optimistic. And, and the thing that I notice actually about this show and about this type of show is how focused it gets on the body and on specifically gore, right? Like severing the finger or digging the, digging the memory grain out of your, um, uh, out of your what neck behind your ear or, you know, the, the uh, slit is threatening to slit your throat with a shard of glass. You know, the, the, yeah. The body is the thing that is that is sort of set in opposition to um, to the technology because it is uh, it's finite. Um, it's it admits of of sort of abuse and battery. Right. It can be wrecked. Uh, you yeah, can. It's s- like a giant ship in in a giant mafia. <laughs> it can be destroyed. Right? Like, it can be set on fire. It can sink to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Whereas, whereas technology, like you can smash this one screen, but you can't smash the screenness of the world, right? You can't smash the the advent, the the advance uh, of the screens, and you can't smash the the uh, impediment that screens place between people, you know, between, you know, human, human relationships, by the way, what's, what's the deal, right? Like in, uh, in what's the deal with lady Sybil? 
you know, right? In <laughs> in Misfits, Lady Sybil had a fascist army. Here, Lady Sybil has a, I don't know, a, a, a dystopian reality show career. Is there something about Jessica Brown Findlay who that that just puts one in mind of of Orwellian future dystopias? Her naivete. That's a that's a, that's a bunch of very general points followed by an extraordinarily specific question. <laughs> I think it's her wearing of pants. It's her wearing of pants yeah. uh, that smashes all of the boundaries. Yes. Uh, the, the people line up to follow the pants. Uh-huh. So, guys. We watched we watch this Twilight Zone-esque show about modern technological and social anxieties, uh, uh, and we've decided to name all of the actors from Downton Abbey and Game of Thrones that are in the show. And that is the big piece of our discussion of the show. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I mean um, well, let, let me, can I, if I could back I was it up. really excited to see Branson. I mean, I, we said Branson. <laughs> yeah, I said Branson, too. It's like, it's the chauffeur. It's didn't, you say, didn't you also say Tony Gillingham? We, everybody in my room said, Master Lewin, Meister Lewin is here. Um, and I said, uh, oh, uh, yeah, in the third one, I said, oh, the doctor from that one episode of the most recent season of 24. <laughs> exactly. The guy talking about his interior, interior decor, decor played the CIA doctor that Jack Bauer pulled a gun on. Uh, or maybe the other character pulled a gun on and made him, like, wake up a terrorist out of a coma. But that's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. Well, but can I, can I go back to one thing that you said in in your in your discourse a little earlier, Matt. Yes, please. That's about like, and I kind of want to hear what everybody else kind of has to think about this about whether this is a show really about future anxieties about the possibilities that technology might go to. Because um, I feel like that's that's pretty essential. It's pretty essential to thinking about the story, right? That like these are presented as okay. Well, at least for, except for the first episode, which is merely an exercise in just terrible, terrible PR management, right? Like it just like an awful, yeah. awful example of how to handle a crisis, um, which is to hire a porn star and a green screen. That's like, if you're at that point, you're pretty much already <laughs> not handling. Uh, Crisis Management 101. But, uh, but the point is that like these are presented as, okay, in the future, technology might happen to such a degree that these are things that people worry about. But I don't feel like in watching the show that the show is really cautionary about the future of technology and how it might change us so much as it is kind of anxious about the way that technology has already changed us and is saying yeah, things I mean, about I- relationships that already exist. Yeah, I, Peter. I don't think the show is really about the future at all. Although the the it's it's like any good science fiction story that it's presented as future technology. But what they're really commenting on is like how how we're already changed and how is these the cold these are merely it's what a they're dark really mirror, commenting right? on is the Cold War and and the ravages <laughs> it's wreaking on our society. Well, that's the Twilight Zone, right? Where where the the thing that you can't shatter is the conformity around you. Right is is like that's the central anxiety of the Twilight Zone is the social conformity is the thing that's bigger than you, whereas in Black Mirror the thing that's around you that's bigger than you is just the presence of aggregate technological action, right? Technology, technolo- technology, technologically amplified action that is happening all around you and is following certain behavior patterns that you've come to recognize as things. Right, the sort of the thinginess of everybody, like uh, the thinginess of mass humiliation on YouTube as being something that can't be stopped. Right, like uh, it's similar to like suburban conformity as a something that would scare you as as a pseudo supernatural sort of experience. Yeah. yeah, and and also like yeah. like and the being on on social media, right? I think that both. Um, 
the the third episode uh the uh like the person the one person who like uh like rips out the grain is like the one person who quits facebook right uh, and uh and similarly in the second one um it's the you know the the impossibility or pointlessness of being the one person to step off the bike right and that even when you step off the bike and even when you take drastic action um the system adapts immediately and kind of pulls you back into that the so bike, you know the bike- didn't change it just got more fierce right yeah mm-hmm. I, I don't know um how many of you got to the second episode but I, I i i thought there was almost a non-coincidental similarity to the movie network if any of you have seen that uh it, it's it's sort of a um it, it's a movie you know without spoilers for all of network it's a very famous scene is this newscaster sort of goes off the deep end um and uh, and 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 you know goes on the uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore speech and and falls in and does this sort of rant against modern society on screen and instead of pulling him from the airwaves as you'd expect them to the network is just like let's give him a slot where he gets to rant and rave about modern society and let's just monetize his craziness um, and that's exactly what happens at the end that, that like you could you can rant against the machine but all the machine is going to do is just sort of commoditize your rant against themselves. Right. The genius of, of late capitalism is its omnivorous quality, right? The fact that it can, uh, it can kind of bend, bend any, um, it can bend any seemingly deviant action to its, to its own ends, right? Although that also, I mean, that also has a, there's a trick of perception there, right? Wherein it's like, is it really the capitalism that is doing it? Or, I mean, cause, cause we, it becomes a horror when you identify the action of the aggregate behaviors as something that has its own agency. But even then, when you're talking about late capitalism, it's not necessarily the bosses or, or any sort of individual person who decides that this is the thing, this is the way that it's going to go. Oh, I have no principles. I have nothing that I stand for. It's just that that's the, the incentives in the system are flexible and resilient and right. they they are not there because people are stupid right like they are not the way that they are because no one is moral you know they are you know the, the bikes don't run that way because no one has said why don't they run that way right like why don't we try it different than the way that we're doing it right like right. um it's it's not like the the apple commercial where all somebody has to do is throw a hammer through the screen and everybody else is like thank you yeah, no, they're like you broke my screen. Now we have exactly. like now, now somebody's got to fix that screen. <laughs> Luckily, I have the warranty. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the warranty for this screen. Always buy Apple Care on all of your screens, right? Like I've dropped enough laptops to know that uh, you should always buy on Apple pro- mobile Apple products the warranty. That, that would be a great Apple commercial, by the way. Somebody like throws a hammer through a giant TV screen, and then somebody else is like, "Oh, still under Apple Care warranty, we can fix that." I mean, to put it in the context of the third one, and I I watched, I I think most of the podcasts watched all three. I only got time to watch the first one and the third one. Uh, I picked the third one because I skipped Tokyo Drift before and and whatever. (laughs) I didn't want to skip the third one this time. But, uh, but uh, that it was, I liked, one of the things I liked about this third episode, the one with the, the sort of the Facebook analog, right? Of like Facebook pictures of your exes are the thing that this episode is about for the most part and text messaging and sort of ability to carry out clandestine relationships via your cell phone, right? Is, is like what this episode is about. I liked how there was no outside agent who was forcing the young attorney, Liam, to go about destroying his personal relationship. Relationships, right? Like he was doing it entirely by himself and to himself using the tools that he had at his disposal and acting towards those tools in a way that if you might not necessarily think is wise, then at least could be understood. 
right? Like that this, there is a self-destruction that is happening here. This is not just about, uh, this is not all about a dystopian hand of the other that is forcing you to do things, all right? The technology affects our own behavior in ways that become reciprocal, right? Or become kind of recursive is the word I'm looking for. It actually reminded me a lot of uh, – we were talking about the Twilight Zone earlier – of the uh, famous one with Shatner, uh, Nick of Time, uh, which is the one with the um, the fortune teller machine. Um, and that one's a little different because it, it, there's more ambiguity as to whether there is a force that's shaping his behavior. But, I mean, ultimately, it is him kind of – him interacting with uh, the technology. And this is the one where it's like the, the – it keeps giving him these ominous uh, these ominous messages. Um, and he uh, – and, and he – for – lack of any other better word shatner's out uh and uh and the and and i, I you know i really saw um you know i don't know if uh the the actor uh who played the young lawyer lawyer in this uh, who played liam uh was channeling shatner but there was i, I felt like this like of you know specific twilight zone uh analogs i felt like in that performance and the way this kind of obsession and and became self-fueling uh reminded me a lot of really really both of of um shatner's uh twilight zones that are well known the other one being the gremlin on the wing of the airplane um i felt like the acting of the prime minister in the first episode was he was shot in an extraordinarily shatner-esque way right like i felt like there were times when they were deliberately making him look like shatner from the twilight zone with the way his brow was sweaty and also at the end when he did the horrific thing on the screen uh because he had to in front of everybody and had no shame that was very shatner-esque of him to do that uh kind of like that (laughs) by the way a fun a fun black mirror game is to imagine if it were the twilight zone what rod serling would say at the end of each episode like what his sort of pun laden final speech would be you know at the end of the first episode it'd be like we're all hogs at the trow in the twilight zone <laughs> I want to hear more from 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 Fiona and from Rachel about their take on the show because I mean they I feel like you probably have a different perspective on it than than us perhaps or maybe not. Well, I mean. <laughs> also, if you let us talk, we'll keep talking, and you won't get to talk, and that's not something that I'm willing so, to. Accept. So you could be, you could be, you can either be silent, or you can be told that you have a different uh, opinion. Oh, yeah, this is the system adapts. The system is recursive. This is an episode of Black Mirror right now that you're currently in. The podcast to technology does not allow us to stop talking. If any of us stop Rachel, talking, Rachel, what do you think? Go ahead. I didn't really want to be a rape babe. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna go play. I'm. I, I'm actually. Every time Rachel tries to talk, I have a boombox that plays that NERD song. So really, there's just the nightmare so, of silence. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it's just the, the well, yeah, but that's that's what we that's what it's always like in our house, you know. I mean, that's that's just the the silence under under which we live because we we've, <laughs> we've actually we've learned from Black Mirror that actually knowing one another's thoughts is uh, a, a prospect too terrible to contemplate, and it's it's better, in fact, to uh, to live in the it's better to live in the unknowing. It's better to quit Facebook and not know when your friends birthdays are it's better to uh you know um to go back to the the heady days of 1996 um you know when life was all i don't really remember 1996 very well (laughs) but if you were on facebook it would be on your timeline right yeah right you you have a timeline before facebook existed if you like upload stuff and and post date them yeah oh can we we find the time travelers like because like my high school uh graduate or like my high school beginning date shows up on facebook i was just thinking like 
going through him going through all of his pictures and stuff like I do that on Facebook it's like hate watching like hate looking like it was it was very I don't know it was very much like something my friends do with their exes you know it was just like I don't know yeah no I think all of these are very uh more kind of to your point Pete they're hyper real right I think they're almost like a heightening of of behaviors that we actually do do and they're they're all very preoccupied do do Yes, and they're all really <laughs> preoccupied with uh, intimacy being somehow eroded via uh, technology in some way, right? All of them end with some sort of erosion of intimacy or intimacy being blocked um, or controlled, etc. I don't know. D- does anyone feel like those sort of preoccupations are alarmist? <laughs> yes. Uh um, but uh, I think your question is leading, but, but I think you're also correct, right? That like, uh, it's, it, it's, um, <laughs> wait, uh, wait, the, the substitution of new values for the things that I value means the things that I value aren't valued in quite the same way now that they, you know, uh, that they used to be right. There's, there's a sort of, uh, there's a, uh, quality of begging the question to a lot of the, you know, to a lot of the argumentation, um, to a lot of the, the implied argumentation, uh, of the show, right? Like, well, uh, it, because it boils down to, well, if other things become important, the things that I consider now important won't be important anymore. Right. Um, and, and that's maybe giving it too short a shrift, but, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it is that, that simple at some, at some level, right? Like it's, it's not, uh, I don't know. It's it's more a uh, it's more a uh, uh, statement of unease or a statement of the, the uh, a state a statement of a of a problem or a statement of a kind of general sense of a problem um, rather than being a, a precise or specific diagnosis. Um, no, I I think that's right. And actually, it reminded we just we watched South Park before digging into this first series and. The latest episode of South Park is called Rehash, and essentially the whole the whole episode is about Kyle's anxiety about the fact that Ike would rather watch uh, YouTube videos of commentary while playing World of No Call of Duty than play Call of Duty with Kyle. And Kyle sees this as like a major perversion of of values, right? And Ike and his little tot friends in really cute, funny, dismissive voices, you know, call him grandpa and dismiss him as irrelevant. And I think there is a little bit of that kind of just like the hysteria at parent, you know, the anxiety feeling like you're irrelevant because you're not totally down with the way things are going or what, what the kids are into these days and some of the kind of preoccupations of the show. Right. Monogamy. Yeah. Monogamy is so last generation, right? Totally. (laughs) So I think that I was thinking about this while I was watching this show, because one of the things that the show definitely does that the Twilight Zone did, too, is it does make leaps of credulity where you're like, well, yeah, that wouldn't happen. Right. Like where it's like all of a sudden, you know, the public opinion poll shifted 60 points in like an hour. Right. Uh, Just because there was a a, uh, the princess got her finger cut off. Right. And it's like, yeah, I'm not sure that the public opinion about something that dramatic 
drastic would change that much like that fast right like that that's just well, like maybe maybe it would isn't it? it it's more accurate perhaps to say i'm not sure that the tools exist for measuring that that to swear yeah. Well, yeah but there's all sorts of little things that you can say and there are there are gaps between what the show is telling you and there's also a lot of like technological gaps like you can't encrypt an ip address like things like that right there's like technological uh, gaps between what might conceivably happen under the credulity of the world that you're established right and i think that the the part of why part of why these gaps are good for shows like this is that you do have to somewhat disarm your your own extraordinary human faculty for flexibility in the face of problems like we we are very flexible we are very resilient we think if we were in a dystopian hexscape you know we would do a reasonably good job of getting by right like you know life is beautiful right like even in the most dire of circumstances humanity like searches for ways to cope searches for ways to deal with each other you know intimacy is something that we can hopefully find even in the darkest of times which of course being a high-powered lawyer in london is not the darkest of times right like uh although rachel might uh might well not rachel but i don't want to identify anyone's profession well no it is it is the darkest (laughs) (laughs) the very darkest time that exists (laughs) is being a lawyer Uh, that that is the most accurate part of the entire the entire show but the point is that like (laughs) the point that i'm trying to make is, is that the the show makes leaps of credulity because i because we it wants to give us the generosity of actually considering these anxieties as they are not entirely of our consideration but they are a part of it right like it is alarmist to say that that you we will be consumed by stress over our our uh, facebook pictures of of exes right it's it's a strange credulity to think that the population in general will be driven to madness and 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 acts of violence by but at the same time like it is an anxiety that people have and it's something that exists in the world so the show, by, but in order to sort of reflect the relationship between the anxiety and the daily experience, there have to be jumps of credulity where you have to be willing to accept a broader, a little bit of a broader suspension of disbelief as to like how people act, I think. Uh, and it also lends it, the lens aspect to the sort of theatricality and emotionality of the rather, of the somewhat reduced scope of experience that a lot of these characters have, where they're super fixated on individual problems in ways that human beings in those situations might not be. Um, yeah. right. It's it's something that, but I I I think also Pete, like that's sure, sure you're you're you want to give it a pass because it's it provides us an occasion to talk about something that that we're looking for an occasion to have a conversation about, right? And that's a sort of valuable service that that um, stories can provide. But also, I think we shouldn't give it too much of a pass because it's also a mark of of. Uh, it's also a mark of bad storytelling, right? Like, uh, that is to say, it, it's, it's hacky when, when your plot, um, when your plot hangs on people being the worst version of themselves all the time, right? It, it's, that's like, that's, uh, uh, Gossip Girl level storytelling, you know, rather than yeah, but being. people love Gossip Girl. I mean, I not, for the, not for the storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know who these people are you're talking about. <laughs> well, well, we we compared the show to Shatner twice already. So to say that it is not hacky, yeah, I know. I don't think anyone's making that claim. Uh, for the record, my girlfriend thought it was quote unquote awful and quite disliked it. I thought it was quote unquote awful and loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just have different preferences over awfulness. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, would love, I would love to be in the pitch meeting where the where the creator of the show came in and explained what he wanted to do for the pilot. <laughs> Why that episode for the first right. one? Like that's the one we're coming out of the gateway. <laughs> that, no, 
that's our that's our flag planted. Can we can we drill down a little bit more into the situation in the first episode of this television yeah, show? Let's, let's keep using kind of metaphors like that. Can we just <laughs> Can we talk about some pig f***ing here? Oh, there it oh, is. Here's, the, here's, here's what, what, what sort of raised minutes. an eyebrow for me when, when Yael and I were watching the, the first episode there, is that it's almost impossible to imagine the scenario. I mean, we, we, can, we can go ahead and say it, right? Spoilers are everything's out of the bag. Um, that, that the scenario in the first episode is everything's that... Everything's out of the bag. And it's standing in a movie studio, and it's Waiting. eating eating out of a bowl. Lights on <laughs> with a single cameraman <laughs> poised uncomfortably. Um, no, all right. So, so there's there's a very beloved sort of popular uh, member of the royal family that has been kidnapped in the. It's Kate. The, it's it's. I mean, it's right. D- Kate, Duchess of Cambridge, right? Like it's it's clear who it is, who it's supposed right. to be. Right. It's, it's, it's somebody that is much more beloved than the prime minister. And the term is that the prime minister must appear on live television and uh, make, make sweet love to a pig. And there are all manner of, of, of caveats about how it must be done and everything. And to me, it's sort of like I just sort of shrugged when that happened. I'm like, well, he can't do that. Uh, and yeah. and then then it because I mean well first of all look if this were at least if this were done in in the United States the United States has a a well known policy of not negotiating with terrorists that you can't just be like the terrorists want this so this is what we're gonna do people because what choice do we have um, and in fact like if you do that you're basically inviting people to start kidnapping all the other members of the royal family and making whatever ridiculous things they want to do right um, now, that's the, that's not the first pig that he did that with right like because because you know once you're in business for for pig effing you know the the pig effing demands never cease right and i mean here's the thing so you on, on one side you you could argue as, as pete did that like this is a it's a fairy tale and that it's not you know it's not supposed to be a plausible scenario that could unfold i also sort of considered that like maybe this is an, an english thing and that like they're like in america it's un, it's it's just impossible to imagine that like even the opposition party you know would would go on tv and just be like the president's got to do this and everyone's got to tune in and watch it uh that's a ridiculous you know if only because they're they're supposed to be the family value social conservatives um but I, I don't know. I mean, like, is this something that you can imagine there being any series of events that would lead to such overwhelming public pressure for, let's say, the president of the United States to do this? Well, uh, here's here's the thing about this. So, and, and I was thinking about this a lot while I was watching it. I was thinking about the Lusitania. Yeah, I was thinking about other kind of large scale media events, right? That where it seems like the very interests of states were kind of disrupted by them, right? Like the very balance of the very balance of massive global institutions was shaken by the kind of virality or or the power of like individual incidents. And I feel like this episode kind of has it backwards in the sense that. Um, you know these incidents that happen, the sort of the sparks that light up the internet. Uh, yes, the the reasons that might push them to overflow in one direction or another might seem capricious or mysterious to like an obser- an outside observer, particularly an outsider observer from a position of strength, somebody who is already like pretty established in life and who like is pretty happy and content. A lot of the, you know the pretty well off, perhaps right. Like they could say, well, the people on the internet will talk about anything, right? Anything could happen, and the people on the internet are going to talk about it. Um, 
and that's the kind of the fear. But I really feel like it, that the story of kind of mass media hysteria and the damaging effects in, of, in the media to like establish power of events is almost always the case of there already being an underlying dynamic that wants to drive that sort of thing to happen. And then the flashpoint merely being something that's really resonant and really appeals to people, right? Like something like the Lusitania, you could argue about like, you know, conspiracies of different people, even if it wasn't a plan, you know, conspiracies of different people who could say, oh, I want a war with Germany, right? Like, so I hear this and I, and I amplify this message. This is the message that I choose to print in my newspaper because I want war with Germany, right? Or then other people who are like, you know, maybe more hawkish than dovish, they get kind of won over by it. So the thing that the, the episode didn't really reflect was like, I, I would be much more interested in seeing like, who actually wants this thing to happen? Yeah. Right? Like, so, who, who, yeah. I actually had a theory about this. So my theory uh, was actually that it was the that it was the queen that it was the British royal family wanted this to happen because what I th- I saw this as doing was undermining the um, like parliamentary authority uh, and 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 under like basically roll I, I actually thought this was going to be a plotline about rolling back the glorious revolution uh, and the Bill of Rights of 1689 uh, and, and, and reestablishing uh, absolute monarchy in the UK um, and and I, mean, I don't mean that in jest because it was I want to like be a monarch. <laughs> right, exactly. It makes sense. I mean, go, yeah. I mean, because, like, yeah, yeah, Louis XIV, the Sun King, if he had Instagram, he'd be all over it. Well, it's, 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 I mean, it is the idea of, like, you know, who stands to gain from the prime minister being undermined. Um, and it's, and, and one, one arm of that is, is the monarchy, right? And that, like, I think that part of why there are such, um, rapid shifts in public opinion, um, and, and why that may not ring as true for the U.S. case or thinking about this, uh, in, in our case, um, is kind of the particular roles of, um, like, of the British monarchy and, uh, the royal family, uh, in, you know, British media and in the tabloid news um and 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 as a kind of sense of of national identity right i mean this episode is called the national anthem um and i think that um i mean to what you were saying pete i think there's an interesting i mean so there's there's this there's there's some social science theory um on like why the glorious revolution was important uh and why it kind of created like checks and balances uh and uh limited government uh in, in the uk and there's an argument actually that it basically creates common knowledge that if uh, like this, this bill of rights that kind of came in with uh, William and Mary established a set of boundaries that um, that everyone knew if the monarch uh, overstepped those bounds uh, then that was grounds for revolt right and that that kind of the the off path threat of another um, of, 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 of another civil war um, kind of keeps this pact in, in, intact and so that kind of these um, massive kind of changing it, it takes these kind of massive shifts to kind of change that common knowledge and what the terms of that agreement are and so that's kind of how I saw this playing out and obviously it ended up not playing out that way it was like basically what Banksy or Damien Hurst or something like that <laughs> that was that was doing it and uh, and uh, and not the queen um, but I, I saw that as kind of being who potentially benefited or what the kind of um, kind of po- politics of it were yeah, I just I just found it the part that strained credulity to the most would be the idea that doing this merely as an art object would would have just such staying power when the flow when the sort of market for information, the market for headlines, the market for ideas is just so driven by interest. 
right? Like, I don't, I don't think it's just people. I don't think people are like agnostic to their own interest in promoting the virality of different sorts of messages, right? Uh, right. And and yeah, I think I think I heard the the glorious revolution. What uh, in the in the David Starkey monarchy TV series? What it was like? They wanted to restore the rights of the king because when they knew the king's rights, they knew what everybody else's rights were too, right? And the idea is like, uh, and that's kind of one of the outcomes of that. And I don't know. It's interesting, but. Um, Sorry, that's a little bit of a side note. I was just thinking more about the Glorious Revolution, but yeah, no, it, it's this—it's this idea that um, that the what uh, is this really just about one man's anxiety in the face of a bunch of problems that he doesn't understand? Well, no. The other reason that this might not happen as much in the United States is that the the target would much less likely be a government figure. I think uh, I would suspect that the target for something like this might be like a figure of industry, like a like a CEO, especially if it's an artist. Right, like if the, the much more likely target for something like this, I think, would be a CEO or like a powerful business person who is then like required by uh, this terrorist to humiliate himself or herself in front of like a large number of people. And I say that because I think if it's a government officials, you know, what, what I'm talking about is that it is in American like our, institutions. Like our beloved Commissioner of Internal Revenue, Josh Kuskinen. Yeah, well, John. there's, there's, yeah. Well, when, when you're talking about monarchy and you're talking about like the investiture of authority in the monarchy, and you're talking about like the use of power on social media as something that's monarchialist, which I think was part of the story, I think a little bit. Um, then there's this idea of the separation between the individual and the office that the individual represents, and I think that that's a big deal in America. I think that like a CEO from a company, at least you know semantically and discursively talking or thinking about himself or herself, can create like a great deal of separation between themselves in the office. Uh, and I think that, that they can do that plausibly in the hegemonic discourse of the time and place. Right? Like, you could say, like, well, they've asked the CEO of DuPont to, like, go do this sex act, and it's like, well, no. Like, I have responsibility to the shareholders of DuPont, and I'm not going to do that. Right? Like, uh, it's like, this is my job. This is not, you know, and, and, I, and, like, I will hide behind my job in order to do this. Um, and I don't, I don't know. It, what's up? Go ahead, sir. I said, well, that's the reason this... Yeah, go ahead. I would also say that I would definitely lose my job if I were to do this, and that is the thing that is most important to me because my role in participating in all these events is in the context of my job. You know, the the idea of my sex life being something that's even on the table is absurd, right? Um, unless I've done something scandalous, and and my opponents again with interest seek to undermine me and get rid of me so that somebody else can become the CEO of Dupont, right? Something of that nature. But anyway, go ahead, Ryan. I, don't, I, okay. I was just going to say that the reason that this also would never happen in the U.S. is that we have Jack Bauer. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Um, well, yeah, I don't suppose anybody else saw the 2008 uh, Diane Lane thriller Untraceable. <laughs> this is a, a super super bad uh like you know like silence of the lambs knockoff but it, it it it's only sprung to mind because the conceit of the 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 movie is that there is a website an unshutdownable website called killwithme.com and the deal is that they they have somebody who is being tortured and slowly killed on the website and that he is killed uh in proportion with the number of people who log on to see it and so it's, of course, that like once word of this website gets out and the government can't keep it from getting out, millions of people log on and the person is like killed right quick. Whereas that if nobody tuned in to see it, that person would be fine. Um, you know, and the, the movie was terrible, but it does seem like had it not been made, it would be the next episode of Black Mirror. Well, I, 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 I also think that that's sort of a facile and that's a facile sort of social commentary. Right. And I'm, there's there's a play by Ben Elton called Popcorn uh, that I saw. 
in like 1993 that was that was pretty much the same thing it was it was kind of a natural born killers style uh thing go, uh, done on the stage that um you know where where the protagonists took a bunch of people hostage and then had like a live ratings count and it's like well if you want to see all these people these people blown up keep watching otherwise turn off your television and you know it was this like live ratings count which was not unthinkable in in uh in 1993 was the the leap of credulity that you had to make but it was like so the last line was so what's it going to be america are you going to turn off your television or are a lot of people gonna die you know uh and and that's right like that i don't know that that i think i think that gets the the symptom almost almost exactly wrong right like uh you know the the idea that like uh terrible things happening is not compelling um is not now and never has been uh has been at issue right like the greeks knew it the the uh the, the, i don't know i i thought that the 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 actual pig effing um scenes were were relatively well done right like because everyone was so everyone was so gung ho about it uh until like uh everyone was so gung ho about it until actually faced with it at which point they <laughs> they did the um <laughs> you know it it actually just i it just realized I, I just realized that this gives the lie to something i've said on <laughs> On the podcast a lot is is this <laughs> am I the last one to grasp the irony of this right mm-hmm. this okay great thank you um the that that was kind of you Pete uh maybe you can ask if if uh never mind um the, yeah Fiona and Rachel do you have anything to say about what <laughs> well, no, no I mean I I agree with Matt though it really it's you know I mean. Right, this could have been, you know, I mean, they could have been the Romans all walking to like the their local public forum or something to to watch the pig effing <laughs> to watch some people get there. audited, you know? Right, and so I right, and I don't know, I don't know, you know, and then maybe there would have been someone making some pointed side smug remark about like, well, while you're all in the forum, things that are important, you know, important things are happening elsewhere in Rome, and you know. But this actually, this bears on the donkey effing conundrum. Um, and <laughs> this actually bears on it, you know, actually quite, it's quite pertinent, right? To the thing, to the, to the point that I often want to make. And, and the point that I want to make about the, the point of the donkey effing conundrum is that you don't watch Midsummer Night's Dream to see order restored at the end. You don't watch it for the spate of marriages. You watch it for the long stretch in a woods when Titania F's a donkey, right? That's what is pleasurable. That's the, that's what's on the poster. Have you ever seen a poster for any theater company from the Royal Shakespeare Company down to your local community theater doing Midsummer Night's Dream? You know what's on it? A donkey, right? They're not even coy about it. It's There's a donkey in this show. This is quite literally a donkey show. You know, that's, that's what it is. The, the, the point that, that I have been trying to make about it, right, is that we watch shows like uh, uh, Criminal Minds, CSI, um, the Law and Order Special Victims Unit, all, all the ones with sort of lurid acts of violence and especially sexual violence, especially against, you know, uh, vulnerable, adorable, little blonde, blue-eyed girls, right? Like, w- we watch them in order to indulge in the spectacle of this 
uh, of this awful thing happening, right? Like that's, that's what they're selling. It's not, you know, you're not watching it because Mulder and Scully are going to find the alien at the end. I've, uh, now I'm just, uh, lapsing into, into incoherence, but right. The whole point is that the shows, the plays, the, the whatever, uh, any, you know, any instance of donkey fucking, oh, damn it. <laughs> There's another one. Uh, <laughs> we've been infected. <laughs> um, it gives you a fig leaf, right? The, the narrative context gives you a fig leaf, right? And you can pretend that you are something other than a dirty donkey effer. You know, uh, you can act like you are more noble you can and and that's actually that's not discreditable either that's required that pretense is required to keep civilization going you know but uh but when when confronted and and this is why just to return to my comment that the pig effing scenes in uh in black mirror were actually very well done um the the escalating level of disgust uh, that was well acted in those crowd scenes. And it's hard to get, it's sometimes hard to get great acting in, in those crowd scenes because they're not, um, you know, they're not all above the line people, right? Like, uh, uh, it's a mixed bag, what you get for background. Um, you know, the, the very good acting of that, like, gradually mounting sense of, sense of disgust, uh, is what, is what made them good, right? Because when you confront your, when you confront those sorts of drives, you know, uh, in actual fact, it's, it's, uh, it makes you queasy, right? It's, it's quite, it's quite uncomfortable. Whereas when you, when you delineate, like, you know, when you delineate, uh, a, you know, a safe donkey effing space, right? Uh, in the woods, uh, in a dream, <laughs> you know, in fairyland, right? Uh, that's when you can sort of indulge those, the, uh, you can indulge those sorts of things and not, uh, and, and still like, you know, rise and go to your job as a, as a, you know, I don't know, lawyer, teacher, stevedore, whatever, um, and live with yourself. So how do you take then the fact that he does come out of it relatively unscathed, save for the extreme emotional distance with his wife, right? I mean, they flash forward and. You know, and they have this very glib little uh, voiceover, and public opinion's just totally fine with the fact that he was a pig effer last year. And <laughs> no, we all forgot about it. Yeah, we have it. Don't you feel like that's there mostly to to uh, prov- to put to throw the wife's response into relief? I I suppose, but I mean, that's I guess I was surprised by it, though, but basically by what you were saying because I I felt that there should have been more of a more of an unraveling, right? That the world, like, that the fact he went through it at all should have unraveled him and the sort of social order more. Well, but I guess it's it's actually a, a point about, like, representative democracy. Like, because he effed the pig, they all effed the pig. Um, <laughs> they're all complicit in the pig effing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She wasn't. She wasn't. Um, yeah. Yeah, because, like, the, the in the relationship... It was not part of like the the wedding, like the 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 um, the marital vow. Um, like no, it's, it's, it's part still, of the, yeah, exactly. It's part of the social contract, not part of the right. marital contract. Right, 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 right. And so that he he and he basically right. It was the <laughs> it was it was it was the the, the pig effing uh, trolley problem basically. 
and and he he and he and he, and he, and he, and he like shoved his wife in front of the trolley uh, so that uh, to 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 uphold the the social responsibility. <laughs> can, can I talk about this from an opposite, like a symmetrical direction, for a second? Because this is something I felt like might also have improved both this episode and the third episode. Because they mention in the first episode, they say. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you do it or not. They're all already seeing it, right? That's something that comes up a number of times early on in the episode, right? This idea that, you know, the idea is out there. And that's part of the fear of the social internet, right? Is that like the thing that might not even really be real is, is still sort of out there. And if a preponderance of opinion or a preponderance of data or a preponderance of your own anxieties kind of gather around it, you can feel like it possesses you even if it's a thing that doesn't exist. So on one hand, we have these things that that is, are real, but that everybody pretends not to see, such as our sort of salacious instincts and our desire to be entertained by base entertainments, which are real things that exist, right? But we all pretend that they're below us in some way uh, in order to succeed. But then there's the idea of things that don't exist that we all kind of like obsess with and, in, and insist are are there, either as kind of uh, cultural noumena indivisible from themselves that are like are in, indestructible, right? And, and in this sense, I almost feel like the first episode of the show, it would have been interesting to see what happens if the the challenge from the terrorist manages to unravel him even without him going through with it right like if the idea of him effing the pig is really what destroys him rather than the actual act of having sex with an animal and then being covered in his own drool in a bathroom stall for an uncomfortably long period of time <laughs> near the end of that uncomfortable t- episode of television right like what it, i mean the old twilight zone in its sort of 50s conservativeness might have done it the other way but i think to transition to the third one it's even more pertinent to say that i feel like that third episode would have been a lot better if there hadn't been that 18 month ago lapse in his, you know, lapse yeah. is a soft way of putting it. Yeah. His wife hadn't cheated on him, you know, during the five day period that they weren't speaking, right? Which kind of like cheaply validates a lot of his complaints to a degree they don't deserve to be validated and invalidates a lot of her complaints to a degree that they also don't deserve to be invalidated. Anyway, go ahead, Matt. It wasn't me. Oh, I thought it was Blink. Oh, okay. was yeah, no, no. I think, I mean, you're, you're completely right that he's paranoid. And, and the Twilight Zone, if it was about one thing, is sort of about paranoia and about how people sort of freak out and crack under pressure. And I think, yes, exact, especially that third episode. Episode was sort of like he is paranoid, and it turns out he's completely justified in that paranoia. Uh, and he was right to be suspicious all along, even though he was completely inappropriate about it. Uh, I don't. It's. <laughs> It's it's interesting. It's interesting stuff. The the, the first episode. I, I do think that the last scene word reveals that he that that his public standing was not seriously affected. That more than anything reminded me of these sort of um, the women who have their uh, sex tapes or nude photos that are sort of leaked. And rather than this being sort of like I've got to retire from public life, it's sort of like the embarrassment really quickly subsides and people almost forget it happens. Um, you know, and that but but like you know. And maybe the the counterside is that like although their sort of public standing isn't affected, it's it's very real to them and it affects them personally in a way that like maybe you don't you don't you're never privy to. Right. That's sort of a dystopian. Right. That's sort of a dystopian vision as well. Right. Like the 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 machine. Like the the common thread to me was sort of degradation. Right. In all cases, you know, and and the the machine the the technology wants you degraded, you know. Uh, and, and provides more and faster ways, um, you know, more and faster ways to, to get degraded. I mean, I sort of wondered about the second one, whether, whether it was, uh, 
I, I sort of wondered what the second one was about, whether, whether it was about the kind of um, reality, whether, whether the, the villain in the second one was actually reality shows or whether the villain was sort of internet porn, uh, right? Because, it, you know, I don't know, internet porn actually seemed to be the, the uh, sort of om- omnivorous technological element, right? The- I, th- I, thought, I thought the villain was electricity. <laughs> I thought the villain was a shard of glass. <laughs> the, so the villain, there- I thought the villain was Rupert Murdoch. So why are they all on the bikes? <laughs> uh, they're all on the bikes because I, my understanding is that they've like, uh, like uh, developed immersive, like, uh, multi-touch technology. I mean, uh, and and uh, that are always on high-def, interactive, kind of virtual reality. Uh, like it's basically like huge, huge um, like iPads that are like surround you. Um, it's like the Matrix, but you actually have to work. Yeah, and and so and then and so that everyone is on the bikes to power these screens and so um and we don't really see what's outside of the the screen jails um but uh that everyone kind of serves the electricity and then the the entertainments either the the porn or the reality show or the various video games are all things that you watch while basically being in the electricity farm uh it's it's interesting that it's never fully established whether they are literally prisoners and that they're like like whether they could just simply opt out and just be like i don't need this i don't need these gadgets and therefore i don't need to pedal and i'm gonna go live on a commune somewhere or whether it's literally like there's a totalitarian state that is forcing them to pedal uh, unless they take one of these like other very rare options to like serve other entertainment functions. Well, I think the point the of that, that the point of that last shot where he's you know he's joined the overclass and is looking out of uh, looking out of windows that are actually just bigger screens is that there sort of is no outside to the system, right? Like that's the, that's the point of the the dystopia, right? There is no totalitarian state. There is no nefarious plot. There is no um, uh, you know there is no escaping. Uh, the screen, it screens, I mean, it screens all the way down, uh, that, that, you know, outside the screens is just, just bigger, bigger screens. It's a, it's a sort of anti-Truman show. Yeah. It's kind of, so it's, it's existential, uh, it's existential judgment day, right? Like the screens have become self-aware, uh, and, and that rather than nuking all of humanity, uh, they just like yoke humanity to the bike. Um, and, and the, and then humanity serves the screen, the screen overlords. Do you hear that in Environmentalists, the screens are going to yoke us to the bike. You know, you feel great about your your special dedicated lanes now. <laughs> I was just I was just curious, given that it, it maybe it seems to make the similar leap that the Matrix did in considering that human beings are like in any way an efficient source of electricity for electronics. Uh, but it's you know I was wondering whether it was like is it really the most efficient way to do this to like grow food, feed food to people, build like friction bikes, put people on the friction bikes, and then turn the cranks of the friction bikes in order to get elect- electricity. Or is it a way of sort of fairly distributing currency in accordance with work? Uh, or is it not, right? Like, is there a pretense that the reason that people are on the bikes is so that the credits can be given out fairly to people who actually work for them as, a, you know, as opposed to sort of, like, given out capriciously due to the value of the market? But then, of course, later that doesn't seem to be the case at all. But right? it's, like, it's like I, I thought that it was important that they were called merits, Right. right. That the that the idea is is that there actually is is some some sense of like moral merit uh, 
you know, that's, that's operating here where it's like, where uh, by the bike is, you know, the bike, it's the, the Puritan, Puritan work ethic bike, you know, where the, the bike is about, you know, your toil in, in, in this world and sort of what you merit, uh, as a good, uh, contributing member of society. Right. Although here's an interesting question. What do you guys make of the people in the yellow that, that there's some sort of suggestion that like, if you can't hack it on the bikes, then you have to be this sort of under this hated underclass where they literally make video games where you get to, you get to kill them in massive numbers. Yeah. I was, I, I thought that was, I don't know. Weird. Well, yeah, being a social revolutionary, you know, being being uh, some one fomenting class warfare, your sympathies were firmly with the people in yellow, right? I don't know. So, I mean, is the idea that the people in yellow are not earning any merits and can never hope to, you know, buy their way out of, of, of their lower statue that like, once you fall that low, you're always going to just be picking up the, the refuse of the people who are still on the bikes. Also, what were they picking up? They looked like little, they looked like little purple Easter egg poops to me, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm unclear why there's so much trash that they need to clean up. Right. Because, energy drinks. Yeah. It's also, not like they the- only ever eat apples and energy drinks. That's kind of weird. Right. Further, further sort of cementing the, the kind of morality tale aspect of it, right? There, there are apples in the garden of Eden. There are, uh, there are apples in the dystopian future. Well, and it is interesting, right? In that, in this area, uh, like all advertising, but especially like the porn, the porn is opt out in this world, right? And you have to pay to opt out of the porn. Um, and so commercials, right? The, the that, porn commercials, yeah, and so you. That, that to me is the scariest part of the whole. As somebody who hates to sit through the same Hulu commercial again and again, every time I want to see the that that the, the idea that like literally if I close my eyes or like try to go to the bathroom during the commercial, it will merely stop and wait until I'm staring at the screen and force me to watch every single frame of it before I can move on. Is that was the scariest thing to me? Yeah, there's someone at Hulu working on that technology now. <laughs> Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't actually choose to like make it a unified, like a make it a single universe by having the people have to watch ads when they're watch, going back and reviewing videotapes of their exes, right? Like uh, there, there were no like pop up ads for like Clash of Clans uh, while while they were like, where were you when you were in Mandalay or not Mandalay, whatever the Marrakesh, Marrakesh, <laughs> Montego, Montego. Mont- Montenegro, some <laughs> exotic place that the James Bond movie would take place in um, that starts with an M and is somewhere in the world and within a 20,000 mile radius. Wow. Yeah. Lawyers don't have pop-up ads. That's the one thing they have going for them in the harsh, grim, dark future. I mean, is- yeah, yeah. Well, they don't, yeah, I mean, yeah, someone, someone's going to find a way to monetize that, right? Like, probably Google. <laughs> put, put ads on it. Um, opt out. <laughs> opt out ads. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we are we are sort of over our usual time. I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to uh, you know make it. Um, I didn't I didn't want to shut down the conversation prematurely. Though there is some business to do. Speaking of of monetizing your commercials. Speaking of you know monetizing your your close friendships and relationships. I uh, just want to remind everyone that the Overthinking It gift guide is um, is published is up on the site. And if you feel like uh, supporting overthinking it with your with cash. I I don't know. That's always you know what I always I always hate that. That's that's such a terrible euphemism. Supporting overthinking it as though 
you know, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of people who, who support us. If you would like to provide overthinking it with the money that, you know, our servers require and our bandwidth for things like this podcast required to run, if you'd like to give us cash dollars, um, you know, if you, <laughs> not merits, not, uh, credits from riding the bike, actual, you know, actual liquid assets, um, we can get a small kickback when you, uh, buy things through the links in our gift guide, uh, or from the links to Amazon on overthinkingit.com on the, uh, on the homepage. Um, you know, and I, it struck me like in listen, listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of websites, which I do, that this seems to be the year of the gift guide, uh, or maybe last year was the year of the gift guide because this, this is the year of sort of ironically hating on the gift guide, um, or being sort of too cool for the gift guide, right? Like there's, there's been a lot of commentary, at least in channels that I follow about how every blog, every website and things like this does a gift guide with affiliate links to get people to, to, uh, click on it and give them money because it's so hard to make, uh, money with display ads. But you know what? <laughs> we did the gift guide so that people would have a channel <laughs> at this time of year when they're using e-commerce to click on it and give us money because it's so hard to monetize the site using other, uh, using other channels. You know, it's, it's, uh, the fact that it's banal doesn't <laughs> make it not true. So, uh, in this atmosphere, we know you have a choice. <laughs> of affiliate links around the holidays. And we're very glad that you use ours, that you consider our affiliate links the um, most worthy of clicking on and uh, our website the most worthy of uh, of supporting with a couple of pennies for every dollar that you spend in e-commerce during this most secular uh, and consumerist time of the year. So uh, you'll find the Overthinking It gift guide on the homepage of Overthinking It. Uh, click through any link there and whatever you buy, whether it's what we recommend or not, uh, you'll be supporting Overthinking It. Thank you very much for doing that. It's a big, uh, it's a big promotion for us every year and it's really important for us keeping the lights on around here. Um, it remains only to thank the panel and to thank the uh, significant others of the panel um, for joining the uh, uh, for joining the podcast. We'll be back next week. Till then, you can visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Pass the Bechdel test real quick now. I went to a live theater event the other night, and it was quite good. Oh, yeah. No, I've been meaning to go to more live theater. We are not sexist. (laughs) (laughs) Proof positive. I also got this awesome nail polish.